Welcome to The Bridgehead with Stephanie Gray and Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, last week, we talked to Dr. Judith Reisman about Alfred Kinsey and the Kinsey Reports, these reports that really paved the way for the sexual revolution. And today, I want to take another look at, at some one of the, what I find the most insidious things that has happened as the result of the sexual revolution, and that is uh, the rise of violent porn. Now, those of you who have been following along with the show know that I've interviewed quite a few people on this topic already, mainly because I find it so so relevant. Because in all the research that I'm doing, and I'm I'm doing quite a bit of that right now, and all the people that I meet outside high schools, I find more and more often that a violent sexual behavior, especially as manifested in males, is directly as the result of the porn that they're consuming. So I've talked to Member of Parliament Joy Smith, who agrees with this and talks about how pornography and violent pornography is used to groom sex abuse victims. I've talked to former porn star Shelley Lubin. We've talked to former porn producer Donnie Pauling. We've had a lot of great people on this program that, that have highlighted the cultural danger that we're in and the brutal impact that this type of pornography has had on us. So today I wanted to go a bit more to the academic side because a lot of people when I, I write about porn and rape culture will say things like, well, there's no academic evidence that there's a direct correlation between pornography and violence. And one of the, the stupider things that I've heard actually is that, well, you know what, if people have these violent sexual tendencies, then maybe you know looking at this type of porn is actually helping them not to do this kind of behavior because it's providing them a so-called a healthy outlet. Of course, this totally ignores the fact that the science of neuroplasticity and addiction really shows us how pornography is driving people to create these new fetishes and these new desires that they never had before, and that slowly but surely they're actually trying these things out on the women and the girls in their lives. So, to discuss that particular topic, I'd like to have a chat with Dr. Mary Ann Layden. She wrote one phenomenal paper called Pornography and Violence, A New Look at Research, which helped me a lot as I was planning for my presentations on pornography and rape culture. And she has been looking into this quite extensively. She's the director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program at the Center for Cognitive Therapy, and that's part of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. So uh, today I gave her a call to find out uh, what her take was on this and what sort of academic evidence is available to show that this this pornified culture that we've created and this porn road that more and more young people are going down is an extraordinarily dangerous one. I hope that you find this conversation as informative as I did. We've been over the last couple of weeks, we've been on our show going through um, pornography and its social impact because here in Canada there's been a, a very broad discussion concerning prostitution laws and pornography has consistently come up, especially in light of, of uh, the UK Prime Minister uh, Cameron's comments about pornography last year. So uh, right. doing a lot of research, we kept on running into your name in research about the fusion of violence and pornography and how that sort of creating what almost amounts to a rape culture in in how people are, are viewing women, how the genders are relating, and the impact it's having on the brains of people. And there's a professor here at the University of Toronto who's been doing a lot of research into the neuroplasticity of the brain and reaching some of the same conclusions. Mm -hmm. uh, what got you into studying this field? When I started as a psychotherapist, and this is just about 30 years ago, I started 
treating patients who were victims of sexual violence and felt an especial call to the damage that sexual violence did to these patients. Mm -hmm. When I had been doing the work for about 10 years, because I'm a little bit of a slow learner, it occurred to me that I had not treated one case of sexual violence that didn't involve pornography. Right. And I said, well, this is <laughs> this is a, a, an interesting piece that in all the different kinds of cases that I treated, some were rape cases, some were incest cases, some were child molestation cases, some were sexual harassment cases. Mm-hmm. In all of these different kinds of cases, pornography showed up in every single one. Right. So I said, okay, there seems to be some connection here. Over time, I got interested in what is common in the perpetrators of sexual violence Mm -hmm. because I realized we were never going to solve the problem of sexual violence by treating victims who've been damaged by the problem and treating them one at a time and trying to put them back together. Absolutely. There weren't enough therapists in the world. There were too many victims in the world. We couldn't solve this by pulling them out of the river one at a time. We were going to have to go upstream and see who was pushing them in. Right. And so I got interested in, well, okay, what do we know about perpetrators? And that's when I saw the confluence. Because when I began to treat perpetrators and listen to the belief systems that they have, what the beliefs that they have, which are called permission-giving beliefs, are a set of beliefs that say, what I'm doing is normal, everybody else is doing it, it doesn't hurt anybody, it's expected, it's fine. All of these are beliefs that give them permission to do what they're doing. And then I said, okay, where did they learn this stuff? Because men are not naturally born rapists with rapist permission-giving beliefs. They're right. not born that way. Somebody has to be teaching them. Right. So we've, we've got to have something that's teaching them to think like this. And that's where I began to see, oh, the best teacher, and I'm using air quotes around the word best, mm-hmm. the best teacher we have of sexual violence supportive beliefs is pornography. It's visual. It's arousing. It shows role models doing behavior. It shows these role models being rewarded for behavior. It has its own reward because pornography use is often connected with masturbation and orgasm, and the orgasm is very rewarding. Mm -hmm. That these people in this situation of watching this pornographic imagery with the messages of sexual violence are actually being rewarded and stimulated to accept those beliefs, act on those beliefs, think everybody else is acting on those beliefs, And so it became the best producer of those permission-giving beliefs. If we look at all the the span of pornography, so pornography can be visual pornography, it can be pornography on the Internet, it can be live pornography, Mm -hmm. like strip clubs. Right. It can be both visual invasion and physical invasion, like prostitution. Mm -hmm. It can be unwilling visual and physical invasion, like sex trafficking, where the the person who's being invaded is not willingly being invaded. So we've got quite a scope. And the thing that's in this whole scope is that sex and the access to women's bodies is something you buy. It's a product. Right. This is a business. And I think that a lot of pimps would stop doing this if there wasn't any money involved. Of course. But it's a business, and this is a product. And as soon as you tell somebody it's a product, as soon as you say this is something you buy, then this is something you can steal. Those two things are hooked. If you can buy it, you can steal it. And even better if you steal it because then you don't pay for it. So 
the sexual exploitation industry, whether it's strip clubs or prostitution or pornography, is where you buy it. Sexual violence is where you steal it. That rape and child molestation and sexual harassment is where you steal it. So these things are all seamlessly connected. There isn't a, a way to draw a bright line of demarcation between rape and prostitution and pornography and child molestation. There's no bright lines of demarcation that the perpetrators are in a common set of beliefs. And when we look at the research, we can see some of those common beliefs so that we know that individuals who are exposed to pornographic media have beliefs such as rape victims like to be raped. Uh, they don't suffer so much when they're raped. Um, they got She got what she wanted when she was raped. Women make false accusations of rape because it really isn't rape. Sex is really either good or great, and there isn't any other, there isn't any other option other than good or great. Nobody's traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. All of these are part of the rape myth, the myth that says here's what we know about rape victims, and they are permission-giving beliefs to rapists, and people who use pornography accept the rape myth to a greater degree than others. So we have a sense that pornography is teaching them to think like a rapist and then triggering them to act like rapists. So we we know from the research that men who look at pornography often ask women to engage in the scenes that they've seen in the pornographic right. imagery. Yes. Even when the woman says, "I think that's degrading. I find it uh, you know, I find it violent, I find it disgusting." The man will say, oh, well, these people are doing it, so you should do it. Why are you refusing it? If you refuse, I'll go pay somebody to do this. Right. And that's when prostitution gets involved. I'll pay her to do things that my partner won't do because I'm entitled to that. Right. In a recent study of John's, one of the John's literally told the interviewer that he did things with the prostitutes that, quote, unquote, real women wouldn't do, which shows right. the dehumanizing right. taking and place. The, and, and there's a subtext in there that prostituted women are different from other women. And that's part of our permission-giving belief for prostitution, that somehow these women are different, that when they're physically invaded and visually invaded, it's not bothering them. And so part of that is well, we, when we look at the research on prostitution, we have a sense of what are the two precursor um, variables that precede females going into prostitution. And one is that they've been raped as children, and the second is that they've been homeless as children. And when you do that to children, they are set up with a set of beliefs that allow them to be used in that way. So this is not a different class of women. This is a traumatized class of women. And so we're saying we can get these women to do things because we've traumatized them as children and we've destroyed their self-respect, we've destroyed their mental health, we've destroyed their view of sex and themselves and what they're good for, and now we can do things to them if we pay them. And so that gives us a permission-giving belief for prostitution and say these prostituted women are just different from other women. Though it's interesting, when I ask men whom I'm treating uh, who are going to prostitutes or, or you know, going to strip clubs or looking at pornography, I'll say to them, do you want your wife to be a prostitute? Do you want your daughter to be a stripper? Are you hoping that your mother will be a porn star? A hundred percent of the men say no. Right. Because they want somebody else's wife, somebody else's daughter, somebody else's mother, somebody else's sister to do these things. They don't want the women they love involved in it. And it's almost as if they don't understand the golden rule. You know, right. do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They somehow don't get it that if they wouldn't do it to the women they love, they shouldn't do it to these other women and tell themselves this myth 
that these other women don't mind. These other women are not traumatized. These other women do it because they like sex. It's like, why is it that only women who've been raped as children and are homeless seem to like sex enough that they would let somebody pay them for it? Right, right. You know? And when I ask men, if, if I said to, to this man, um, how much would I have to pay you to let a stranger physically invade your body with his penis? <clears throat> what would I have to what, name the money amount? Uh-huh. That that I would have to give you to let a stranger do that to you, where the stranger's picking you, you're not picking them, and I've yet to have a man who would name a money amount that would make it worth it to him to do it. Right. So he doesn't want it done to him. He doesn't want it done to people he loves. He wants to do it to other people, and but, there's a kind of narcissistic entitlement to uh-huh. that. And here's the problem that I've been running into quite a bit is uh, I've seen the porn statistics and some of the most recent statistics about the rate uh, that young males are being exposed to porn. Some porn researchers say are are saying that if you don't think your kids are going to see porn at some point, you're delusional. And additionally, it's it's so powerful and addictive that a lot of a lot of boys are now getting addicted to porn before they fully even realize what it is. The average first exposure to pornography is age 11. Right. Uh, by the time they reach the age of 18, most of them have seen group sex, bestiality, uh, and all number of other things, including and a rape scene. Yeah, sadomasochism. Which is, is, is they've a seen a rape one. scene and it's been described and shown as if it's sexy. So we're telling them that violence is sexy. So when when the porn rates are, are now reaching 83% of men, young men, are seeing right. porn, a minimum, a minimum, like intentionally viewing it a minimum of twice a month, uh, when we're basically rewiring the brains of an entire upcoming generation, and we don't have accurate statistics on why, um, you know, why they're looking at it, but furthermore, what they're going to do with these new thoughts beyond untraining an entire generation of young men that have been hooked on this stuff. Where do we go from here? Well, I think the first thing we do is what we do when we had a crisis with cigarette smoking. Uh-huh. Uh, we understand that there is research that says these two things are combined in a public health crisis way. We start to look at it. We start to say, what do we do to stop it? We get the public will first being educated and getting out of their willful blindness to say, you need to see that this is damaging an entire generation of men and an entire generation of women. Because not only do we see that young men who are being exposed to this, the earlier they're exposed to it, in my own research I found, the more likely they are to engage in non-consensual sex. So we're teaching them to be rapists. But we also found in my research that the young women who are exposed are more likely to be victims of Mm non-consensual sex. So women are now tolerating men's behavior that says, you know, I, I, I've got rapist beliefs, and, and you're going to put up with this, and you're going to be the victim of this. Right. So it's a generation of men and a generation of women that are all being destroyed. And then we get whatever um, powers that be, and in the United States it's the the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, to say this is a public health crisis and we've got to do something about it. We start to disseminate the research. We have reporters who stand up and tell the truth, who write articles in the media of all sorts and say, here here are all the studies that say that this is causing this crisis. And so we do what we did with cigarette smoking, is we start to put the genie back in the bottle. And we did it with cigarette smoking by having... Uh, you know, all of the groups get together with cigarette smoking. It was the doctors and the reporters and the lawyers and all of these people got together and said, mm-hmm. we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do something about this. And we have turned around the situation with cigarette smoking to the point where, you know, I was alive at a, at a point where people smoked in every building and on every airplane. And now they don't, you know, now they don't smoke in the pubs. We can do that with this crisis as well. 
but we need everybody to get together and tell the truth. But we and we're not to... quite there because we still have reporters who go out and report junk science right. that coming out of unwell-trained professional people who, who, you know, talk about studies that are absolutely junk science. And cherry pick that say, you know, um, and, and there are a couple of studies that are out there, one written by a lawyer <clears throat> who, who literally wrote a paper that is quoted by everybody who wants to defend pornography, where if you read that paper, if that paper was turned in by an undergraduate to a class, it would be failed because <laughs> everything that's said in that paper is what, not What's that even... paper called, just for the listeners? So they... <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure I want to name this paper at this point, but, it, but the, the point that this lawyer is making uh-huh. is that as Internet pornography has increased, the porn rape has, rate has gone – I mean the, the rape rate has gone down. Right. Yes, and I've heard that. You actually may know the paper I'm talking about. Yes. There is not – first, there's no data analysis in that paper whatsoever, even though he makes statements in the paper that are statements that are made that come out of data analysis. And he'll make a statement. If you if you'd run this statistic, which is called a correlation, you could make the statement you're making. He didn't run the correlation, but he's making the statement anyway. And And in addition, if you even eyeballed the data that he's talking about, even looking at the raw data – you would say that raw data does not support your premise. I can look at the graph and say it does not support your premise. So he didn't run any analysis. He, you know, it's like, and yet everybody will will actually quote that paper, which is absolutely junk science, and is also somebody writing in an area that is not their area of expertise. They are they are writing outside of their area of expertise. They're talking about psychological phenomena, and they have no degree in psychology. And it looks like they have no degree. In, they have no. They never took a statistics course either because. Some of the statements that are made are laughable. So we've got to have reporters telling the truth. We've got to have reporters that say, here's what the research that's really done, and here's what it says. We've got to have parents knowing that there's a crisis. We've got to have people having access to uh, support systems, filters, and so on. We've got to have libraries being willing to filter their Internet. We've got to have everybody getting together and saying, we've got to turn this around. We cannot throw away this generation of men and women who are coming up with a pornified point of view. But people um, seem to to, not, to dislike hearing a lot of this stuff. I wrote a column some time back on the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon based on yeah. high school students that I, that I talk to quite often. I, what I found was that reading this book, or, or, or even worse, uh, young girls seeing their mothers read this book and then reading it themselves – uh, led them to believe that they should accept you know, stalking, pain, humiliation, and any number of other of these things inside right. a romantic context. And boys who had been watching this type of pornography and may have never dared to actually suggest such activities were now emboldened to ask right. the girls for those activities because the adults were leading the way by saying that this type of thing was, you know, sort of harmless. Like, how do you combat? Something like like a Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon, which celebrates sadomasochism, but it sold a hundred million copies, and and young girls who are so confused already, uh, their boyfriends are hooked on porn, and their mothers are reading this book. Right. Well, first, um, I have talked about that book, though I will refuse to call it by its by, by its name. When I talk about it, I call it Fifty Shades of Stupid. <laughs> oh. So so I, I cannot honor it by honoring this writer, who damaged young people around the world in order to make money. And right. we've got to call out that writer and say, this is what you did. You damaged young people in order to make money. 
that you, when you put the put the scales of balance up and said, I'm going to make some money and I can hurt people in order to make money, okay, that's a good idea. Let me go do it. And the writer should be called out on it. And then we need to call out the adults who are leading the way of this and say, you need to stop hurting young people too. And I think that the desire that women have to be loved and cared for and, and have good marriages and marriages that are stable is so overwhelming that they're at the point they would do anything. Right. They would do anything. And when they see that the men that they are surrounded with are pornified, they are willing to do anything. And that's part of the explanation of why with our young people we have a hookup culture. Right. These young women, college-age women and, and increasingly high school-age women, are willing to put up with anything and partly the media has told women that your self-esteem is based on the degree to which you're sexually chosen by men. Mm-hmm. You're sexually aroused, arousing of men. Precisely. And so they are desperate to get that feedback. They're desperate for self-esteem, self-esteem being the core of our psychology, but that even, they would do anything to get it. And if it means being chained and whipped, then they're willing to do that. But even Hannah Rosen in her book that came out about a year and a half ago, The End of Men, admitted when she interviewed university students, and she ostensibly supports hookup culture, and when she asked them um, what was the one thing they'd like to try, and a lot of these girls had, had, had tried everything in casual relationships, and the one answer she got that shocked her the most was, I'd just like a guy to phone me up and take me out for yogurt. Yeah. Because I mean, that the, was the desire for tried. love is built into us, and there was a the conference at the Witherspoon Institute, which was the conference for which one of the papers that I wrote came out of the social costs of pornography. Mm-hmm. Roger Scruton, who spoke at that conference, who did a wonderful job, and he was talking about all the damages of pornography, but his last sentence of his talk was the most potent because he said, after he told us about all these damages, he said, but the real damage is that it threatens the loss of love in a world where only love brings happiness. I saw that. And so that summarizes what we are doing, that everybody is hardwired to love and be loved, that that's what feeds our hungry heart. And we have a generation who are starved and have hungry hearts, and yet they are eating the sexual junk food (laughs) and, and becoming sexually obese because they're so starved they would eat junk food if that's all that's available to them. And so partly we need to have people talk about the the glory of good sex, the wonderfulness of good sex, mm-hmm. of how it bonds committed couples together and helps them keep their promises to each right. other, that that there is a thing called good sexuality that is enhancing and enlivening and, and is love-based, but all of this sexual junk food that's out there is not it. Right, and then the, this thing called fidelity, which everyone, everyone's forgotten about, is inextricably connected with that healthiness. Right, because it's right. Not like and, and somebody has said from. to me, if you <clears throat> want the pot to boil, put the lid on it. <laughs> right, right. Well, and then the thing, the thing that I've, I, I've stated before when I've, when I've had debates with people is they say, you know, the anti-porn crowd is anti-sex. And I say, no, we elevate sex to something beyond a casual fluid swap. Um, right. Well, and and if I said to people, I want you to eat healthy food and don't go to McDonald's, they wouldn't call me anti-food. Right. They would say, you're just in fo- you you just want to promote healthy food and you don't want people to go see that supersize me movie and find out if you eat McDonald's every day for 30 days you'll have a fatty liver. Right. Say, well, that's what I want to do with sexuality. I want to promote healthy, loving, enhancing, soul-feeding 
sexuality, well, not sexual junk food. You can't commodify something without cheapening it. It defies right. economics. Right. And when you cheapen sex and you cheapen women's bodies, when you treat people like things, there's a consequence. And one of the consequences is sexual violence, but one of the consequences is relationship damage. And there's an interesting series of studies that actually highlights a bit of the phenomena of how this works. And I don't want to go into all the details of this series, but they were showing people just mildly sexualized pictures. They were men and women in swimsuits, men and women in their underwear, so they were sort of relatively mild sexualized pictures. Mm -hmm. And they showed them either upside right or upside down and looked at the processing in the brain because it, it will display a phenomena of which part of your brain you're using to process that picture that you see. Right. What we see with men, when people look at men um, and look at them in their swimsuits or their underwear, they're using the part of their brain that processes humans and human faces. But when we look at women in their swimsuits and their underwear, we use the part of our brain that processes tools and objects. Right. And when you process a woman as a tool or an object, you use the rules that we use when we deal with tools and objects. And that is, if it's not doing its job, throw it away. Get right. another one. So when you you know when the feminist years ago said these men are treating women as sex objects and we thought that was a metaphor it wasn't a metaphor right. <laughs> it was an actual statement of reality right. that they're using the part of their brain there which they process objects and things and there's a consequence in the society when you start treating you know sex as a product and women as a thing right well just to close off. Uh, what's the one thing you would tell each and every listener to do? If you could tell them just to do one thing to fight porn culture, what's the one thing you would tell them oh, to do? Oh, I only get one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna, it's going to be a long string on sentence. I mean, I, I think we've got to educate ourselves. We've got mm -hmm. to tell the truth to others. You've got to speak truth to authority because once you know this stuff, if you're silent, silence is complicity. We've got to go into our schools and our libraries and say, you've got to protect our children. We've got to say to our governments, you've got to stop spreading permission-giving beliefs, and that means don't legalize prostitution. It tells men that it's fine, and then they will, more men will go to prostitutes. Mm -hmm. We've got to have laws against things that damage people. We've got to have outrage in the society when when sexual violence is swept under the rug when you know an athlete, you know, a professional athlete does it. We've got to come together and have the journalists, the treaters, the, the, the lawyers, the parents to get together as a mighty team and say the society is worth saving, our children are worth saving, sexuality is sacred, we've got to do it together. And so it takes a concerted effort. There isn't one thing that will turn the course, right. but it's educating everybody okay. that this, this is something that is doable. When I hear people say we can't put the genie back in the bottle, I say, yeah, uh, 50 years ago, 60% of the people in New York City smoked. Today, 18% in New York City smoke. Right. We put the genie back in the bottle. We can do this one as well, and right. it's worth doing. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Mary Ann Layden, the director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program at the Center for Cognitive Therapy, and that's at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, talking to us about the result of violent pornography and how violence in pornography is impacting our society at large. I just want all of you to, to think about what kind of society we're building when so many men and boys are tuning into this type of violence 
uh, for recreation and for entertainment and where so many women now think that it's normal and even romantic to accept a pain and violence in the sexual context, in the romantic context. So we've got some more exciting interviews that, that are going through this type of thing coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in and have a great weekend.